You are listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. We invite you to join us on the exciting journey of following Jesus and bringing the kingdom of God wherever we go. This episode was recorded at the Vineyard Nordic Summer Camp. What we would look long that a church would look like. What a wonderful church looks like. That's our title, should you have forgotten overnight. No, don't go there yet. The other one. There you go. What a wonderful church looks like. And you remember from yesterday morning, this time yesterday, John talked about it being a biblical church. We long for a church that is rooted in the scriptures. Secondly, we long for a church that is spirit-filled, which was something that I talked about last night, and the Lord, do you know, I have a friend who says, respectfully, he sometimes prays, Holy Spirit, will you show up and show off? And I think that's exactly what the Holy Spirit did last night. He showed up and he showed off. And this morning I want to talk about a wonderful church is a people-focused church. Of course we are a Christ-centered people. He's the beginning and the end of it. He is the center of it all. He's because we're here. He is beyond wonderful, and we all know that. So we're Christ-centered, but we're people-focused, simply because Jesus was, and we're highly relational because Jesus was. He is our model in all things. So I want to tell you this morning about what I think was a moment of wonder in our vineyard history. And we're going back now, uh, probably, oh, probably, John, what, 30, 30, 35 years ago, we were at a meeting of the Vineyard Council in the United States. We think, we were trying to remember this morning, we think it was in Houston, Texas, but that's neither here nor there. Could have been California. I think it was Houston. And Wimber was leading the meeting. And at the end of the evening, everyone was quite tired, and we were, we'd had a very good day, and then people were asking him questions. We were about maybe 20 of us in a room, and there was a, one of those very old-fashioned sort of, um, what are they, uh, an easel, a board with paper on it. Flip chart. A flip chart. Do you remember flip charts? Oh, those were the days. And a crayon. And he had this pen. So he took a pen and he went to the flip chart and he said, this is what I think we should try to look like as a vineyard church. And he began to scribble what has since become known as the vineyard man or indeed the vineyard woman or the vineyard person or the vineyard church member. To be part of a bo the body of Christ at its best, firing on all cylinders, to be part of a vineyard church, he said, this is how I want it to look. And I want to introduce you to, and now you may put up on the screen, our hilarious looking little vineyard man. But this is a helpful graphic, and I have to tell you, it's difficult to take you there. But in the moment, as John scribbled on this flip chart, suddenly... This whole thing came together. It all made sense. It was all about the people of the church and how we should function and who we should be. And therefore, I am taking it upon myself to remind you of what he reminded us of because our history is set. This is where we are. This, is, this was our inheritance. This was our birthright. This is our sacred trust. And so I want to tell you about this vineyard man, and this little picture is just quite helpful. So the first thing you need to notice about him is that he is based on the Bible. 
the bedrock of everything, said Wimber, are the scriptures. We first met Wimber when we did. I met him in London. About You met him in 82. I met him the next year in 83. I'll tell you in a moment. I mean, like John said last night, he was, you know, he was very overweight. He was a Californian. They don't necessarily go together. He was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. He was wearing Reeboks. And he was chewing gum. I mean, this is not what you do in church. And as far as John and I were concerned, chewing gum was like a banned substance. It was cannabis as in our home and in our history. So, he, I mean, everything was wrong. Everything was wrong. And then he came and started to speak to us. And he preached. And he handled the scriptures beautifully, expertly. This was his passion, this book. This book, the menu, as he called it. And so as he talked about the scriptures and as he talked about the importance of the Bible, John and I thought, we can hang around this man. This man has really got it. It's wonderful. So we loved it. And we long that our default as a vineyard movement should always be those words in Romans that Paul wrote when he said to the Romans, what does the scripture say? In other words, whatever issue you're dealing with, whatever thing comes across your screen, whether you are troubled with a sickness, whether your marriage is under stress, whether you don't know how to parent your children, who does? Whether you don't know whether or not to pay your taxes, whether you should, how should you be a good neighbor, how should you be a good student? Everything is in the scriptures. What does the scripture say? That, I think, is a vineyard default verse. Romans 4 and verse 3. The Bible is our plumb line. John said it last night or yesterday again. It's our gold standard. It's our compass. It's our magnetic north. Moses said to the people, these are not just words, he said. These are not mere words. They are your very life. I want the vineyard to be full of men and women who have a passion for teaching the Bible. Weren't your Weren't you deeply heartened last night? We talked about it on the way home. There were so many men and women came here because the Spirit of God was upon them, convincing them of the truth and telling them that they were to teach the Scriptures faithfully, fully, the whole counsel of God. And we need to pray for our teachers and our preachers. They are so, so important when it comes to keeping the, keeping the sacred trust as it should be. So we look for the vineyard to be preached, the scriptures to be preached faithfully, week in and week out, group in and group out. Every time you're with your friends and every time we talk about the Lord, we talk about the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? And the other thing, of course, we are, this next thing up on the, on the bedrock, as it were, upon which the vineyard man stands, is the kingdom of God. We look at the scriptures through the lenses of the kingdom of God, the rule and the reign of God on the earth in our time. And this was what Wimber brought to us that was so new. There were theologians who talked about it before, before people like George Ladd, but nobody had articulated so clearly and so doably, so possibly, the theology of the kingdom. It's what we've sometimes called the now and the not yet. Sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. So you will pray for two people during the course of an evening, like we did last night. One will get healed, we saw that happening, and one might not, because that's the reality. Our job is to do the stuff, and to pray the prayers, and to do the things that Jesus told us to do. It is God's job to deliver, not ours. And so when we see the kingdom come, we rejoice. We hear about Stephanie's hand, and we say, this is amazing. And then we pray for somebody that we go on praying for in, week in, month in, year in and out, 
that doesn't get healed. We just keep on doing what Jesus would have us keep doing. And the result is his. The responsibility is his. Our responsibility is to do the stuff like he told us to do. If you love me, keep my commandments, he said. And his commandments were that you and I should go and heal the sick and preach the gospel and plant churches and care for the poor and cast out the demons and do the things that he would have done. We are people of the kingdom who understand that now and not yet. Sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. We've sometimes talked about, in, in, certainly in America, and in American films, you see um, sometimes something they call a picket fence. Do you know about a picket fence? I should have brought you a picture. But um, basically, it's a white fence, usually white, and it has uprights held together by two long vertical pieces, horizontal pieces across the back. So verticals up and down, horizontals across the back. Now, the thing with the picket fence is you can see through it. So sometimes there's a slat, an upward piece, then there's a gap. Then there's a slat, then there's a gap. They're very pretty. It's the kingdom. Now you see it, now you don't. Now you see it, now you don't. Hebrews 11, some people were you know, dragged off the battlefield, shoulder high, triumphant. And in the same verse, in verse 35, women, other women who received back their dead, other women saw people sawn in half, slaughtered, cut in two, all the dreadful things that happened in Hebrews 11. And that's the Lord saying the both, the now and the not yet. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. You keep doing it anyway. That's the beauty of this kingdom stuff. You see, it makes it possible for us. So I prayed for somebody at one point who wanted another child. They had one, but they simply couldn't have more and they longed for a large family. So they came and asked us to pray, and I prayed with a friend of mine who was also a pastor. Within nine months, about nine months and five minutes, this woman had conceived, and in fact, she had twins. She had twins. So she got her large family, just like that, literally overnight. It was so exciting. We were so thrilled. My friend, who prayed with me, went to hospital a month later after years of prayer and had a total hysterectomy. Now, what do you do with that, people? What do you do with that pastorally? How do you keep praying and keep encouraging and keep insisting that God heals? And yet, how do you pastor the grief and the disappointment and the times when it doesn't seem to happen? It's only the theology of the kingdom on which we stand that makes, I think, that makes that pastorally bearable. The theology of the kingdom, it keeps us orthodox and it protects us from error. Because historically, the church has sometimes lurched from one place to another, one end of the pendulum to another end. Sometimes we have people who are cessationists. That's what John and I were born into originally. We were evangelicals, we were Bible-loving, we were orthodox, but we were cessationists. We believed it had all finished at the end of the book of Acts. It was as if the God gave the church a sort of kickstart, sent us into orbit, and then withdrew which looking back is ludicrous, but that's what we believed. Cessationism, which gives us a sense of resignation and a sense of defeat. God doesn't do miracles today anymore. Oh, what a miserable way to live. Or it saves us from triumphalism, which says, well, God heals everybody. We need heaven now. It's all for us and it's all for now, which is all very well until it doesn't work. So then what do the triumphalists say? It's your fault. You didn't have enough faith. If you'd had more faith, you would have been healed. Well, how does that make your person feel? 
It's pastorally inept. It's, it's just unkind. It's only the theology of the kingdom, people, that will keep us, keep us pressing on, pressing on. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. So basically, we are people of the scriptures and we are people of uh, the kingdom. The next thing, the next leg that John taught us about, he said, the vineyard man stands solid on the Bible and on theology of the kingdom and he has his two legs. One is worship and one is compassion. Those are the legs upon which the vineyard body is built and sustained. We believe ultimately, utterly, in the power of worship. That was how the vineyard first broke into the Christian world, really, about 40 years ago or more. It was a group, like I told you last night, of people who were so broken and so done in that one of them, who was only a teenager, went and picked up a guitar and started to sing. And they started to sing to Jesus. They were so fed up with all the awful songs they'd been singing. But they just started, they discovered that if you sang to Jesus and you told him how amazing he was, sing a simple song of love to my Savior, to my Jesus. I'm grateful for the things you've done. Precious Savior, precious Jesus. And as they started to sing those intimate, sweet, just intimate songs, Jesus came and his presence drew near and everything began to change. And that was the key. That's what they discovered. That's what we've inherited. That's why we love it. That's why we sing the new song that has only just been written about God of our mothers and fathers. Will you do today what you did back then? That was a song that they sang in a back room 40 years ago. This was a song that we sang this morning. And did you feel the Spirit of God come? Mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, I will pour out my Spirit, said the Lord. And he's poured out his Spirit on us, continuing to do so, not least in the singing of his songs. Man's chief end, the Westminster Confession, I was a Presbyterian as a child. Man's chief end, that means purpose, is to worship God and to enjoy him forever. In the vineyard, our first priority is to worship. And almost say if we did nothing else, we just sang the songs, which is why we love to sing so much and why we always get a little bit disappointed when we have to stop <laughs> in the nicest possible way. It's our number one thing. The vineyard was birthed in worship, and the vineyard lives on through its worship. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. I honestly think there are few things more glorious this side of heaven than to worship the Lord in the company of his people. I love to worship. I love to listen. I have all sorts of things on my you know, iPhone, and I listen to all sorts of worship from Thomas Tallis and Monteverdi all the way through to modern songs, modern bands even. Love it, love it. But basically, that's what we do. We had, and I, I suppose more than anything, I love it when I do it with my brothers and sisters. I look forward to coming in the morning and singing with you. I'm longing for seven o'clock this evening when we get to sing again. Because we worship the Lord in the company of his people. And there's nothing more precious. It's a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous thing. We had a girl in a church, one of our churches, who had been incredibly, um, she'd had such a messed life. She was an ed addict, I think it was heroin. She lived on the street. She ate out of food bins on the streets. She would rummage through and find people's leftover hamburgers. Pitiful woman. And then through the vineyard, 
through the vineyard as it went to the poor and as it went to serve in its compassion. She got met, she got saved, she came to Jesus. And there's no one I've ever seen in our movement in the UK who worships the Lord with such abandon. She just loses it in her worship and in her gratitude because she that was lost got saved. And the only way she can tell Jesus how amazing he is is to sing a little heart out, whether anybody's listening or not. That's what worship looks like. And that's what's so precious. There are the loud and the passionate songs and the exciting songs and the songs that we dance to. But there are the sweet, sweet, intimate songs, the achingly beautiful songs. You are here and I behold your beauty. Do you remember that? That's very long ago. You are here and I behold your beauty. A friend of mine brought a friend of hers to a church in one of our vineyards and this woman had never been to anything like it. And she went out, when she went home, she said, these people aren't just singing about love. They're in love, she said. She'd never seen it before. Very, very sweet. So God has given us something extremely precious through the work of the vineyard in its worship. But the other leg, too, is incredibly important. We are worshippers of God, but we're also rescuers of men. Compassion is the other leg upon which we stand, upon which the vineyard should be known. There was once an old prophetic figure in the movement. He's a funny old bird, and he was an odd old boy too. But um, he, in the 80s, the vineyard had a sort of adventure with some of these prophetic voices who were amazing. They were odd, but they were amazing. Anyway, he said that when he thought of the vineyard, when he first met the vineyard, he knew very little, but he saw a banner across the heavens. He all saw all sorts of amazing things. And he saw this banner floating over the vineyard movement, and it said, Worship and Compassion worship and compassion and he said you are and then another of them another of them said you are rescue worshipers of God and you are rescuers of men and women that's how you want to be known that's what a wonderful church looks like that's what you want to work for fight for strive for pray for that you would be a church in your city in that city whose name I can't say but looks wonderful on the screen all those lovely cities that you represent all those places you come from your shores and your islands, your forests and your cities, all those places need vineyard churches. And by the way, you need to plant many, many more of them. You're so good at it. Plant them everywhere. Make the vineyard movement in the Nordic nations like a rash, like a virus that just spreads and infects every city, town, village, countryside. That's what you need to be doing. And all of your churches need to be known as worshippers of God and rescuers of men and women, and all. That's what you need to be doing. The vineyard has always been known as a healing movement. It's always been known as a movement of compassion. There was a Syrian refugee I heard quoted in the press. He was in Germany. He'd fled all the way from Syria through dreadful deprivations. He'd arrived in Germany, and he said this, there is mercy in the church. There is no mercy on the street. Wouldn't that be good if that was what was said of us? There's no mercy in the streets, but there is mercy in the church. I was quoting at breakfast um, Carol Wimber, who of course is John's widow and still alive and kicking and amazing in her early 80s, just wonderful. She was the prophetic voice, really, behind the birth, the conception and birth of the movement. God spoke to her about what was going to happen. He spoke to her recently that the vineyard movement was going to experience an outpouring of the Spirit of God yet again, which is what I think we're experiencing now. This is what's going on, people, at this very moment. 
wonderful thing. And Carol was talking to a group in the States this year. She went back and started speaking. She hadn't spoken publicly for about 20 years. And she said, in her wonderful way, she said, before I die, before I die, she said, the Spirit of God was all over her, before I die, remember this, people, remember this, it's all about mercy. It was only ever about mercy. That's what we were born into, people. That's what we work for, fight for, long for, the mercy of God, which was why we were all, and not least myself, reduced to tears when we saw that film last night about those wonderful people out in Myanmar and what was going on in the streets and among the lowest of the low and the lostest of the lost. That's who we are. That's what made us cry. That's what makes us weep, because that's who we are. That's what we're for. That's what we should be known to be doing, praying for the sick, breaking the powers of darkness, bondage, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, empowering the powerless, speaking for those that cannot speak for themselves, speaking for the unborn. The weakest of the weak in the whole of the world are the unborn who can't even voice their life. That's what we should be fighting for. That's the things that we should be resisting at all costs. We are for justice. We are for compassion. We are for the poor. We are for the voiceless because we are the vineyard. And that's what we need to be doing. I had a wonderful story of a young um, Korean girl. She was an artist. And she went to a church in New Zealand. It was the first time she'd ever been through the doors of a vineyard. She had a severe skin disorder, and she'd been suffering from it for years. She'd also been suffering from years of legalistic religion, where she'd been told that she should not wear makeup. She reported later about her first experience walking into the vineyard in Auckland, where she said, all I saw was peace and joy on the faces of the people where she was told that she could wear makeup as thick as she liked and where her skin disease was healed in a moment. That's the vineyard. That's what we long for. That's what we want to see. And so it was, and so it was, that Wimber doodled his way. Do you have that word? To doodle, to scribble, to sort of think aloud on paper. That's what this was. The vineyard man was born by somebody thinking aloud on paper is what I'm trying to do. So he scribbled his way into the history books, and he continued to talk about or to weave that part of our tapestry that is the body of Christ. He continued to explain it to us in this way, and he looked at the body of the little vineyard man, and he divided it into four. And he said, basically, that's, do they come up all together, or do we get them one by one? Basically, he said, we are in the vineyard a family. We are a family. And again, um, it was Fleming who talked this morning about being a family. He talked about it last night. We are a family. Sometimes John and I go around the world and people will say to us, what is the vineyard exactly? And you will always say, the vineyard is a family, a global family with a purpose. If it was just a family, it would be like Christmas all the time and we'd only all sort of be looking at ourselves and giving each other presents and pats on the back. But we're not, we're a family with a purpose. We have a work to do, we have a, we have a mission to fulfill, we have a world to win, because we have purpose. We get up in the morning to do this stuff. We have a purpose in our lives. We're family with a purpose. John chapter 8 and verse 11, do you remember when they brought that poor woman to Jesus who had been caught in the midst, I mean literally, in adultery? Imagine they brought her wrapped up in a duvet, wrapped up in a sheet in front of Jesus, these Pharisees, these hypocritical, leering men, 
brought her to Jesus to expose her, to humiliate her. And at the end of their encounter, Jesus said to her, where are your, where are your accusers? And they drifted away. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Which is the perfect, perfect prototype for us. We have people come as they are, but we don't want them to stay as they are. Come as you are. Come with all your stuff. Come with all your mess. Come with all your baggage. Come with all your past. I don't care. Okay, you've got your past. Let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to deal with your past. Now let's look to the future. Come as you are. You should never be ashamed. You should never be embarrassed. You should never be mortified to come into our churches looking or smelling as you do. Come in. Come in. But because we love you so much, we don't want to leave you like this. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. It doesn't have to be. It can be better. You can look better. You can smell better. You can live better. You can get saved. You can become part of our family with a purpose. We are a family. We share life together. We do what families do. I have somebody I've been talking to recently who was who's struggling with alcoholism, and she said to me, oh, I can, I'm going to do this on my own. I can do this on my own. I'm fighting this on my own. And I said to her, well, why would you? Because you don't need to. How will you do that? By willpower, she said. You can't do that. You need transfer. Like I think Dave Peterson talked about it yesterday morning. Transformation only comes in the context of community. Come and join the family. Come, let us help you with your issues. None of us have stuff that we'd be proud of. We all of us came here crawling on our hands and knees and desperate for Jesus. And look at what he's done. He's dusted us down. He's picked us up and he's sent us on our way rejoicing. Come and join us. Come and be part of the family. We are a family. And that's exactly what we love to be. Secondly, he said, as part of the body, we are a school. We are a school. We need to learn how to do all this stuff. We're a school. I've got it all in the muddle here. Well, you know what, what I mean. We are a school. We are a training center. One of the things Wimber used to teach most articulately was that lovely scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where Paul writes about equipping the saints, that's you and me, equipping the saints, the people of God, for works of service, comma, so that the body of Christ should be built up. We can train each other we can get better at doing Christian living. We can help each other and train each other in our marriages, like you're talking about, I think, today. We can help each other on how to parent children, which is probably the highest life skill any of us ever have to learn. We can help and train each other how to be better leaders. We can help and train each other about how to pray for the sick, how to listen to the Lord, how to learn to prophesy more accurately, more carefully, more sensitively. These are learnable things. Jesus took his disciples with him for three years, taught them all he knew. He said, all authority is on me because I'm here to do these things. I'm here to preach the gospel, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, all of those things, to bind up the brokenhearted. And then he trained them, and then he sent them off. He sent 12 of them off. And he said, now you go and do it. You go and heal the sick. I think it was Matthew chapter 10. After this, he brought his disciples to him and he gave them the authority and he said, now you go, pray for the sick, heal your, all that stuff. Jesus' authority became ours. He gave it to us. If you and I could begin to grasp 
the significance of the authority that we have as believers, it will transform the way that we operate. It's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. We all get to do this stuff. So, and then, of course, there was Luke 10, where they all came back to Jesus, 72 of them by now. He'd sent them off. And they went off in their pairs, and then they came back, reported back to HQ. This is what we saw. So you go out and you do your stuff, and then you come back and you tell the group, this is what happened when we went out. And you come like a Stephanie, you say, this is what happened when my family prayed for my hand. And you, you report back. And then our faith grows. And then we think, yeah, we could do that. We can train each other how to pray for the sick and how to do these things, just like Jesus did with the 12 and the 72, passing on his authority, training them how to do it. We had a group um, in one of our churches in, in the UK, and they were doing a training class with people about how to go out onto the streets and pray for the sick, which I have to say is a jolly brave thing to do. But like I said last night, why wouldn't you take that risk? So they were training these people, and they gave them as little sort of visual aids, if you like, um, bars of chocolate. And on the side of the chocolate, there was a, you know, God loves you sort of thing, and the address of the local church. And so they sent them out onto the streets to give people a bar of chocolate and say something that they'd been told, helped with one or two things to say. You can train us, yourselves in this. Have you ever thought to learn how to tell a friend about Jesus in 30 seconds? or in three minutes? What would you use as an opening line? And if somebody comes to you, oh, please, God, wouldn't it be wonderful, and says, what must I do to be saved? What would you do? Uh, 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 where's Fleming? You can't do that. No, you need to learn how to lead somebody to Jesus, how to explain to them the way of salvation. It can be learned. It can be practiced in the mirror. So that when that moment comes, and you're talking to somebody over the back garden fence, and they say, what on earth were you doing on Sunday, and why does it matter so much? You say, let me tell you about Jesus. Boom, 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 boom. We can get better at this. We can equip one another. Our churches should be schools in which we help people to do these things better. Anyway, this couple, they went to the class, middle-aged couple, never done anything before like this. So they went, and they learned, and they tried to think, how would we do this? Learned you know, one or two things they might say to somebody that they met in the street. So armed with their chocolate bars, off they went to a neighboring town on a Saturday morning. They were very nervous. They were a middle-aged couple. They felt totally weak, which is always a good sign. They felt very weak and inadequate, loaded with chocolate, and one another for company. Always good to do it in a two. Saw this young couple coming towards them, and they nudged each other and said, ah, oh, this is it. I think this is it. And they saw this young boy and a girl together. And so they went to them and they said something like, you probably think we're very strange, but we are Christians. We know there's a God in heaven, and we know that he loves you. Is there anything you would like him to do for you today? I think it was something like that. Oh, and as a little token of his affection, here's a bar of chocolate to send on your way. It turned out that the girl of this couple had been miserable, and she had said into the open air that morning, had no faith. She just cried out, if there's somebody out there, if nothing nice happens to me today, I'm going to end it all. I'm going to give up. And she was met by a middle-aged couple who'd been taught how to go to the street and talk about Jesus, who gave her a bar of chocolate with an address on the side. Next day, she went to the vineyard church and she got saved. She is on her way to heaven because that middle-aged couple, in all their weakness and all their fear, 
took a risk. That's what we do, people. It's a wonderful thing. But we need our churches, we need our schools in which to learn better how to do these things. We're a family, we're a school, we are a hospital, are we? Next thing? Well, we thought we are. We're a hospital. Are we a hospital? Tell me when it comes. Oh, we're a hospital, I told you. <laughs> told you. The Vineyard has always been known as a healing movement. It was one of the first things, I suppose the worship was the first thing and the healing movement was the second thing that broke upon the Christian scene. As Wimber and those early, early vineyard people learned how to pray for the sick. The first time they ever came to London, the first time they ever came to London, and I met them I should say, was the year after John had. And John Wimber came to London and he brought a team of young people with him. They had been trained how to pray for the sick. They had paid their own fares to get there. They had worked three or four jobs at a time. They were mostly young. They had, made, they had gone to huge lengths, great sacrifices, did it all themselves, never asked for anything, gave away everything they had. And when these young people weren't praying for the sick, they were crawling over the lions in Trafalgar Square, taking each other's photographs. They were so excited. And this was a healing team that came from Anaheim. It was the first time any of us had seen anything quite like it. And I went this in the evening with John, and we, had, we were working in another Anglican church next to HTB at the time. And so John had discovered and met with Wimber and was obviously hugely affected and thrilled, come home and told me about it. And we decided that we ought to perhaps to go together to this meeting. And we took some of our people with, them, with us. And so... Um, we got to this meeting. We sat, of course, in the back row, which is everybody who's not terribly sure of whether they want to be here sits in the back row. And that was me. I didn't want to be there. I was anxious. I was nervous. I was pretty skeptical. I didn't like the way he dressed, and I thought he ate too much. So basically, I was not ready to be impressed. Okay? So he preached. First of all, he talked from the scriptures, like I told you. And that was nice, because it was obviously biblical, and that made me feel safe. And then he just started, he put down his Bible, and he started walking up and down the platform, and he said, now, there are, put your stuff down, we're going to pray for people. And there are men and women in this room who are suffering from, and then he started listing all the things that were wrong in their bodies. I thought, this is cheeky. But you know, it was as if he was reading medical notes, or indeed reading an x-ray plate, like you see in the, on, you know, sort of television. And he had absolute accuracy. Somebody has been to the hospital on Thursday, somebody else had a doctor's appointment this week and the doctor said such and such. I mean, just reading it off. And he had no notes. There was no way he could do it. He was listening to the Lord and it was just extraordinary. I loved it. Although I was in the back row and skeptical, it was riveting. And then he said, um, and there are a group of people here who are really struggling with athlete's foot. Have you ever heard of that? Does that translate? It's a fungal condition of your feet. Okay, horrid. But I thought to myself, how dare you talk about people's feet in church? <laughs> and if, if you have athlete's foot, my friend, just keep your socks on and don't tell anybody. I really don't want to know. So I was offended by then. But it was only going to get worse, because the next thing he said, and there are a group of women in this room, it was a big room, packed with people. He said, there are a lot of women here, a little group of women, who um, are struggling with a particular gynecological condition. Well, I mean, that was it. I thought, that has crossed a boundary. I am not prepared to have this overweight, badly dressed American in a church in London talking about gynecology. No thank you. 
You need to understand that I am a correct woman, as you can obviously see. I was born of woman, but she was very uptight, my mother. She was a large woman and very uptight. She was emotionally probably not that intelligent, we would say. However, when I got married to John at the advanced age of 31, she obviously felt it was necessary to have a word with me. 31 people I was. This was news. So she said, um, my darling, we need to talk. Oh no, 31 years, you could have done this sooner, surely. Anyway. And she said to me, my darling, we need to talk. I have had two babies, I don't know how, and don't ask me anything. There you go. That was my sex education as I grew into marriage. Which helps to explain why John Wimber, talking about gynecology in church, was absolutely not on. Especially as the condition to which he referred was one with which I was personally struggling at that time. Now, my mother didn't want anyone to know I had ovaries, let alone there was anything wrong with them. So it was a really terrible moment. However, the Spirit of God came on me. I was red, I was hot, I was fluttering. All the things we know now is evidence of the presence of the Spirit of God, okay? I'm talking about a hospital. I was a hospital case. And then I thought, and he said, we have bought a team which have been trained and equipped. We bought a team and they would love to pray for you and you will find that they are sensitive and kind and they simply want to bless what God is already doing in you. And if you'd like to slip to the back, you can meet with them and they'll pray for you. He did it beautifully, actually. So I, of course, was in misery and agony and not knowing what to do, but of course the obvious thing was that if, if one was to limp, it would look as if one was the athlete's foot, and nobody needed, nobody needed to know that one was the gynecological case. <laughs> I mean, honestly, forgive me, Lord, which he has. So I limped to the back, feeling awful, and I thought, well, when I get there, I will be met by a really lovely lady. She'll probably be warm and comfortable. She might be a midwife or a doula. She might even be a nurse. That's fine. But oh dear me, no. I was met by a young man who wasn't even as tall as me, and I'm not tall. He was up to about here. He was very young, and he was very, very hairy. Okay. So he had as much body hair as Esau. He everywhere. And he was also wearing a sleeveless shirt, singlet. Am I taking you there? Are you there? Tufts, tufts, hair everywhere. Up his neck, back, underarms, ears, nose, everything. Everywhere I looked, I just saw hair. It was like, it was really horrid. And it was so hobbit, you wouldn't believe. And little feet, little feet. So... And he said to me, he said to me, what can I do for you, honey? <laughs> Excuse me, nobody calls me honey. So I said, well, I just, I can't remember what I said. And to his eternal credit, he was very sweet and he prayed for me. I didn't even remember anything else. I couldn't get out there fast enough. And then as I left, he said, hold out your hands. I said, I beg your pardon. He said, hold out your hands. Real sort of like that. And then he went... Go and pray for the sick. I thought, whoa, goodness me. I mean, it was extraordinary. So I went back shaky to my seat, and I said to John, 
bless him. I said, John, I've got to get to the front. I've got to go and see that man, Wimber. I've got to go and do the stuff that he's doing. This is very interesting. And John, to his eternal credit, recognized that this was the Spirit of God. He was far more in, in tune with all this than I was. And he took me to the front and he said to John, to Wimber, Wimber, this is John, this is my wife, Eleanor. You met her at coffee this morning. Will you take her with you, uh, with you and will you teach her all you know? And for two hours, I prayed for the sick in the company of Wimber and he taught me all he knew. Jesus took his disciples with him. He taught them all he knew. You take people with you. You, you teach them all you know. This has been going on for 2,000 years. This is what we mean when we talk about apostolic succession. This is what we're talking about from one disciple to another to another, all the way down through the generations. Any old fool can do this, people. And it was amazing. And then as he left, you know, he taught me what to look for. Look at the flushing of that person's throat as they wait upon the Holy Spirit. They sometimes get a little pinker. Look at that little bit of trembling on their hands as they're waiting for the Lord. Look at the, um, the gleam on that girl's face. That's not natural. That chap looks like an angel. That's certainly not natural. You know, things like that. And then the fluttering of the eyelids. Have you ever seen that? Of course you have. Could you do that in the mirror if you tried? No, I tried. I did a lot of it. I went home doing this for a long time. <laughs> Couldn't do it. It's evidence of the Spirit of God. Who, why does he do that? I don't know. But he just does it to make his presence known, maybe. I'm here. I'm doing these things. I am at work. His presence is his power. That's what Wimber taught us. That's what we need to remember. His presence is his power. Wonderful, wonderful things. Jesus called his disciples to them and he gave it to him and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. As you go, he said, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. That's the worst sort of disease you could imagine in our day. Just think of what it might be now and drive out the demons. That's what he told us to do. And then lastly, he said, we are an army. People, we're an army. We're not just here to fill pews, sit and take notes, and tell each other how fun this is. We are an army, and we're on maneuvers, and we are commissioned. There's a work to be done. The day that I got prayed for, the day that Wimber prayed for me, the day that young fellow slapped my hands, I was commissioned. I was commissioned. I became a, part, a commissioned officer in the army of the Lord, and I cannot think of now until the day that I see him face to face than doing the stuff that soldiers do. I am a soldier and a servant of the Most High God, and so are you. And this is what we need to do. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the last thing, of course, it, Wimber said to us, everyone gets to play. We all get to do this stuff. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And we all get to play. That's why we're in the vineyard. We're, it's not enough for us to sit in the pew. It's not enough for us to sit on the bleachers and watch the game down on the pitch. No, we want to be in the middle of it. We're not a spectator people. We're a participating people. We're people that want to play, that want to do this stuff, that want to join in his game, as Cardinal Sunan said. It's a wonderful thing. And then, of course, the whole thing comes back. Oh, uh, the arms, you'll be interested just because we have to hurry through. One is church planting 
and the other one is renewal. That's what the vineyard has always been about. Going to other churches, going to other streams, going to anybody who wants anything that we've got. First time we ever came across Wimber, he gave us everything. He said to John, come to my warehouse, anything you want you can have. Books, tapes, CDs, whatever they were in those old days. Anything you want, John, you can have. You had to buy a new suitcase just to come home in order to contain the generosity of the vineyard that he'd first come across. We should be a generous people, a giving people, a people who give and give and give, like you're going to be doing this week. That's what we do. We do it for the renewal of the vineyard. We do it for the renewal of the church across the world, which is why the vineyard is known across the world, for giving away what God has given to us, that other churches be blessed, other churches be renewed. Our brother is never our enemy. It doesn't matter whether he's handling snakes or swinging censers. Anyone that names the name of Jesus is a brother or a sister. And the vineyard was always designed to go to the whole church and to share anything that God had given us, we want to give you. And then, of course, church planting. Why would you not? And quite honestly, as a movement, you're known to be eager for, longing for, ready to plant churches. And I suppose I want to say to you, why don't you do more? Why don't you do more of it? Why don't you go to all those cities and villages and forests and lakes and towns and universities right across the Scandinavian world and plant churches? Because churches are the most effective way of reaching our desperate world for Jesus. And there are men and women in this room this very week in whom there is stirring a dream. And I think I want to say, I hope it's a dream from which you never wake up. Go away and plant these churches. So Jesus, of course, is the head of it all. And then we come to the head, and it's our Lord Jesus. He's the head. He's the key. He's the tops. He's the best. He's why we do it. And he's saying to us, you are kingdom people. He's saying, you should pray for the sick. He said, you should heal them, you should cast out the demons, you should do these things, and you should all get to do it, because you all get to play with my authority. So these are the things, I think, that make for a healthy, high-functioning, wonderful church, where the signs of the kingdom are very clear, and they lead us to wonder. Signs lead us to wonder, and that's what we're for. Let's pray, and then we must disperse for coffee. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for this wonderful, precious church into which you have called us. And because we're family, and because we're together, and because this is a family gathering, we can turn to each other and say, haven't the Lord blessed us to be part of the vineyard? We love this movement. We love how you've designed it. We love to be one of these figures with our feet based on the Bible, with our feet based in the theology of the kingdom, with compassion and worship running through our veins. We want to be part of a family, part of a hospital, part of an army, part of a school. We want to renew the whole church. We want to plant more churches that the lost might get saved. And we want to do it all under the lordship and the headship of our precious, precious, wonderful Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I ask you to take the vineyard movement in this, in this land, in these lands. Bless them. Bless them, Lord. God of our mothers and fathers, will you come and do to the sons and daughters all you ever did before but more? Lord, we don't buy into that thing about those of the glory days. Well, they were fun, 
But these people, these are the glory days. And might you go forth in the power of his spirit to live and work to his praise and his glory. And the people of Nordic Vineyard said, Amen. Amen. Coffee time. You have been listening to the Vineyard Nordic podcast. For more information, please visit the Vineyard Nordic's website, vineyardnordic.org.